Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are returning to an always favorite of mine, uh, Mr. Parker Pine. What confidence trick is he playing in this one, Kemper? <laughs> no, the no confidence trick. Parker Pine continues to be abroad. We are at the gate of Baghdad. That is today's Parker Pine selection. First published in Nash's Paul Mall in June 1933 as At the Gate of Baghdad. Under that previously mentioned grouping, The Arabian Nights of Parker Pine, because this is Parker Pine abroad. And it doesn't appear to have been published in the U.S. until it showed up in, of course, Parker Pine Investigates in 1934, which did go under the alternate title of Mr. Parker Pine Detective in the U.S. And I think that we neglect to mention that most times that we refer to the Parker Pine collection. I mean, it's so slightly different. It's one of those changes where I'm like, why was that change made? What do you get between Parker Pine Investigates and Mr. Parker Pine Detective? But hey. I don't know. Parker Pine Investigates is also a better title. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, Poirot Investigates, Parker Pine Investigates. I like an active title, right? Right. Agreed. All right. Catherine Broback, tell us about our victim. So our victim is Captain Smethurst. He's an old Etonian and somewhat a dim one at that. He is found dead on this tour bus slash motor coach, ostensibly having been bashed over the head by something like a sandbag. I feel like there's some shade thrown at British public schools, specifically Eaton, within this story. It doesn't, oh, yeah. Right? The, the, the Eaton shade is pretty hard in this, I think. <laughs> Let's always remember Agatha Christie was homeschooled at a time when no one would have called it that because it was very normal not to necessarily right. go anywhere. But she did learn at home and then go to a series of finishing schools abroad. So perhaps she felt that overly formal education was a bit silly or... Or, uh, unnecessary. Right. Well, and I think we're going to find out she also, especially with uh, the captain here, thinks that it's a little bit like people caught up in that education um, above all else. Yes. It becomes such a, an insular world, the world of British public schooling. And she pokes fun at it time and time again with the character of Hastings in the Poirot right. novels as well. There's many references to Hastings having an instant rapport with someone because he knows they went to the right schools and Poirot lovingly pokes fun at his insularity. Right that. Right. It's always so hard for me to remember that public school in the UK refers to essentially what we in the US would call private school. Or boarding school. Or yeah, or boarding school. Our version of public schools is what they would refer to, I believe, as state school. Right. And also, you know, boarding school systems, we call boarding schools in the US too. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess a private school is an umbrella term, a subset of which are boarding schools. Correct. And public schools in the UK are that specific subset of what we call boarding school. In any case, let's talk about our suspects. Well, our suspects are everyone in the motor coach. We have a closed Pullman here. Um, <laughs> and so first we have Netta Price and her aunt, who, let's be honest, aren't really suspects. I would also like to point out, by the way, Netta Price and her aunt, who it is noted has some facial hair. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I know. Um, Lovely. Her name is Price. And this did remind me for a second of Appointment with Death, which doesn't take place in Damascus, but nearby, both in Jerusalem and Petra, because we had a Miss Pierce in that story who was the sidekick to Lady Westholm. Let us never forget Lady Westholm and Appointment with Death. And right. um, in the theatrical version of Appointment with Death, the character name was changed to Miss Price. And that character was played by none other than Joan Hickson. And the story is told that Appointment with Death is the play Christy watched with Joan Hickson in it, after which she wrote Hickson a note saying, I hope one day you can play my dear Miss Marple. I believe that someone contacted us and said it, that it is true that she watched Hickson and said that she wanted her to play Miss Marple, but it wasn't in that play. It was actually in another play. But in any case, we do know that Joan Hickson played that character. And um, Netta Price, I like to think, is a younger relation of that Miss Price. So it's all, I, know, I, it's I all like connected in the Yeah, I like the, I like the, what do they call it? The Marvel Cinematic Universe. This mm-hmm. is like the uh, Christie Mystery Universe. The Christieverse. verse yeah. 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 The Christieverse. It has little pocket universes within it. Like it has the Poirot-verse and the, the Satterthverse, the Marple-verse and the Beresford-verse, I guess we could call it. Sure. The Battle-verse. The battle, the battle verse. Well, and, and you know, and some of them sort of exist and have overlap, but then they don't, and it all gets very deliciously confusing. And we just love to parse out these connections when we can. So I like that. Therein lies another. Next up, we have an Armenian woman and her son who apparently don't merit names. So I'm just going to assume that their last name is Kardashian. Being in Armenia was a life-changing experience. (laughs) Great. (laughs) (laughs) It makes it much more colorful to imagine that it's Chris and Rob Kardashian on this motor coach, doesn't it? I love it. It's too bad they don't have dialogue because if so, we could read it out with lots of vocal fry. Really bad counter. Last night. Last night. Deal. Funny. Backful. All around. LA. Party. But hell. Rehab. Tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So that's Chris and Rob Kardashian. Next up, we've got Mr. Hensley, who does some municipal bureaucratic work in Baghdad. Then we have General Polly, who's an Italian general, as his name might suggest. You might be able to tell in this that a lot of these characters don't really have defining characteristics. Right, right. They're just Italian or Armenian. Um, We finish with a trio of Royal Air Force officers, Loftus, O'Rourke, and Williamson. And we will learn more about each of them individually as we get into the world as it appears to be. Catherine Robeck starts off. So Parker Pine, our old frenemy, (laughs) is uh, vacationing in Damascus on a route to Baghdad. And the way for him to do this is apparently a Pullman motor coach, which is shared by a group of very random strangers. This trip takes a day and a half, whereas it's mentioned that prior to the motor coaches, the trip from Damascus to Baghdad, understandably, would have taken a month. Right. And this is a trip that we know Agatha Christie herself took many a time. She writes about it in her autobiography. She obviously was visiting the Middle East regularly starting around this time when she was writing the short story in the early 30s, since she, of course, was married to Max Mallowan at this point. So this is a trip that she is very familiar with. Mm -hmm. 
It does not sound like a pleasant trip, even in the motor coach, because of what we will come across. Yeah, it sounds like it could be rather a rough trip. And it looks like a, a Pullman coach is it's kind of like an antiquated bus, right? Oh, right. That's why I originally said they're essentially on a tour bus. Yeah, I mean, that was my sense. It's about the size of a bus and it's motorized, obviously, but it's a transport that a whole bunch of people can pile into en masse and uh, get from one point to another. Before embarking on the trip, Parker Pine is reminded of a poem that gives the story its title. And this is a poem by James Elroy Flecker, The Gates of Damascus. We do not have to linger on it because it's not a great poem, but we should definitely point out this line, which Pine quotes at the beginning of the story. Postern of fate, the desert gate, (laughs) disaster's cavern, fort of fear, the portal of Baghdad am I, the doorway of Diyarbakir. And uh, yes, if Catherine's oh no didn't clue you in, we do begin (laughs) that line with the phrase postern of faith. Which which most Christy people should feel immediately ominous about. Oh, I put two exclamation points in my margin just of horror and and impending doom. Because yes, postern of fate is of course the last written of Christie's, not less published of Christie's novels. And um, we'll have time to discuss it when we get there, but definitely not her best. And nobody thinks so. (laughs) No one thinks so. Um, Anyway, Parker Pine sort of pathetically is flipping through newspapers, basically only to pick out news because they can only find a French newspaper. And he doesn't seem to really read French, so he's only just picking out the news that he can read that has to do with England. He's not interested in anything else, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that he's apparently chosen to go on a long vacation in the Middle East. But he um, ends up talking to General Pauly about their mutual interest in this British financial scammer named Samuel Long, himself an Eaton man and also an Oxford man, who apparently went on the lam when the authorities caught on to his financial crimes. And I guess it's now an active common speculation to figure out where he might have gone. Right. And since he did read about that in the newspaper, we know that, of course, that has to be significant since any news item mentioned in a newspaper and in a Christie short story is, you know. Right. uh, And it's it's, it's unclear slightly what Samuel Long did, but like, let's just assume he's like Bernie Madoff. Right. So Pine then just kind of wanders around Damascus. He First he goes to the movies, and this is what Christie writes. Mr. Parker Pine amused himself that evening by going to a cinema. Afterwards, he was directed to a, quote, nightly palace of gaieties, end quote. It appeared to him to be neither a palace nor gay. <laughs> the prince of tides is neither about princes nor tides. Discuss. Various ladies danced with a distinct lack of verve. The applause was languid. You know what they say, what happens in Damascus stays in Damascus. So while he's at this nightclub, he runs into Captain Smethurst, who was last seen wandering off with a colleague of his, Mr. Hensley. And uh, Smethurst, it is noted, is wearing his Eaton tie. And in the club, he is very drunk and despondent. And Parker Pine tries to talk to him and engage him, draw him out, but pretty much to no avail. Pine interestingly refers to his own work when Smetharts asks him what he does as the confidence trick. So he knows exactly what he's doing. He shows Smethurst his famous Are You Happy ad, and Smethurst rightfully calls him out for being a scam artist of women. Uh, oh, but Pine, Pine's response is, well, there are men, too. Right. He's like, well, no, I don't scam just women. Men also. Men also. <laughs> but we should note that Smethurst says, what, you too, after bringing up the idea confidence of um, trick. the confidence trick, after Pine 
Pine brings up the idea of the confidence trick. And he's already told Parker Pine that he's drinking a lot because he doesn't like to, quote, go back on a pal. End quote. And Pine just eventually leaves him shaking his head over what a mess he is and giving up on him, saying he's a bad lot. Yeah. Also, Smethurst keeps trying to kind of bully Pine into partaking of the local liquor, and Pine is just like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out. Anyway, on the journey to Baghdad, that then starts. Um, and after a stop over at a fort, which is a real place, it's not described in great detail, but apparently was actually a stopover on this long trip to Baghdad. The coach rolls off again into the night with everyone essentially falling asleep. Even Parker Pine, who tries desperately to stay awake before they are jolted awake because the coach becomes stuck in the mud. So this is essentially a case of all hands on deck because otherwise we are going to be stuck in the middle of the desert and it will be, you know, 100 degrees in the morning the next day and we're going to have to get the coach out of out of this mud. So all the men try to help wedge the coach out, but it's rough going and then they realize the fact that Smethurst has not joined them to help. So, RAF gentleman O'Rourke goes to investigate, only, whoops, he's dead. Yeah, and all of the ladies are still on the coach, right? While this is happening, they're not helping. Trump right, and there's and the Armenians are not helping also. Right, Rob Kardashian, <laughs> there's a comment made that it seems that Rob Kardashian is just sticking with his mom, Chris, and I don't know, selling socks or doing whatever he does from under her skirts, and uh, they're not super happy about that. I mean, socks is something that I feel like just isn't really, like, captured. I feel like it's just a market that's, there's so much room for improvement. And so, you know. The selling of socks would actually be an interesting point in this story, Kemper. <laughs> it would, actually. You know what? I Maybe my Kardashian reference is apt. So, yeah, we are back to our Pullman coach, and uh, RAF officer O'Rourke has found our poor Smethurst here is not just super hungover, but in fact dead. And Loftus, who is a doctor, checks him out and determines Determines that it seems he either hit his head on the ceiling on this bumpy journey or someone whacked him over the head with a sandbag because there is no visible wound. And while everyone thinks that the bumpy ride solution seems dubious at best, no one else bumped their head that badly, certainly. It apparently has theoretically happened before. There was a story told earlier on about this very thing happening. Uh, and of, the only Right, because of how slightly treacherous, even in this newfangled motor coach, the ride still is to Baghdad. Totally, because even though they're able to move quickly with speed comes the bad luck of hitting a, something super bumpy, especially when you can't see all that well where you're going well, since it's also, super you know, sandy. <laughs> there probably aren't seatbelts. I'm sure. So the only other option would be murder, but why? Parker Pine, of course, is on hand to recount his story of the weird drunken comments that our victim made in the bar. And then RAF officer Williamson remembers overhearing him having a weird conversation with an unseen third party about how he would only keep quiet until they reached Baghdad. And then Loftus, the doctor, also suggests that Hensley and Smethurst were talking about some kind of mole in their department. So, right. and again, they're working in a sort of municipal department, right, within the overarching yeah, bureaucracy some sort of, of right. some sort of colonialist bureaucratic structure. Function, in Baghdad. Structure, yeah. yeah. So, Parker Pine 
just goes really all out here and decides that um, this almost had to do with the case of Samuel Long, because sure, why not just <laughs> jump to that conclusion? He's like, because I read it in the newspaper and it was put in the story. So it has to And, and has by to the way, connect. I read it I read it in the newspaper in the only part of the newspaper that I could read where I could identify the words talking about England. <laughs> <laughs> so that is actually the basis that Parker Pine is going on here. And then, you know, really to just build on that. Uh, he also says that obviously because of that, one of them is Samuel Long. But of course. <laughs> because, of course, that's immediately, immediately what you think. Anyway, though, it is Parker Pine, and, you know, he's come to some conclusions before. And as we should remember, Parker Pine really seems to have some um, connections to British intelligence. So, you know, he might know more than he's letting on. Anyway, since murder weapon has to be a sandbag or something approximating a sandbag, they try to consider what that could be. And they all know that Hensley, as a matter of practicality, having lived in the desert for so long, in part, I think, um, always keeps additional socks on him. Most people just do stripes or basics. I'm kind of doing all kinds of weird stuff. So Parker Pine goes and says to Loftus, this could be what we're looking for. Will you go check on Hensley's socks? There's still, we just changed packaging and fabrics and materials. So I want to be in the industry for a while. And lo and behold... Loftus returns with a sock filled with dun 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 damp sand. Hmm. <laughs> so we end the world as it appears to be with Hensley seeming to be the culprit here. Except Pine has a different idea. You know, the world as it actually is, is that Pine then immediately tells everyone gathered that Loftus is actually Samuel Long. And what? he killed Smethurst. Yeah! <laughs> and he killed Smethurst because they both went to Eden. And Long had taken the name of Loftus in Cairo when he found out that the real Loftus, the real doctor for the RAF, um, was not actually going to make the journey back to Baghdad. So, you know, Long sees this as another good opportunity to hide. So he takes a medical bag and he heads to Baghdad, except unfortunately, just through coincidence, on that bus... One of those fellow passengers is his old school chum, and he is immediately recognized. That chum being Smethurst. Correct. So what does Samuel Long do to poor Smethurst, Kemper? Samuel Long stabs him in the back of the neck with a stiletto from inside uh, his medical bag. And then he tells everyone that Smethurst has been killed by a bump to the head. And since he is the only medical official on board, no one double checks except for Parker Pine who had also pre-checked Hensley's socks before sending Loftus to look at them. And so he knew that there was nary a grain of damp sand in them. And no, they were very clean socks. He probably just bought them from Rob Kardashian. Why socks? Just something that I've always, like, was big on. He probably had just bought them from Rob Kardashian. Sure they one, had an interesting, an interesting pattern on them. Nowadays, it's just, it's a different generation. I mean, you go into Foot Locker and it's, 
a rainbow room of socks and shorts and shirts. And Loftus thereby incriminated himself when he tried to plant a sand-filled sock. Literally, my job is I make socks. That's all I do. On Hensley, and right. uh, Parker Pine is able to do justice for once in a story. And I know, actually- I know, actually. He actually <laughs> solves a crime. It's the only time, I think, that we've seen. I mean, he, he kind of does it in the last story that we covered. He intuits what's going on. And it's basically what he's doing here, too. But, yeah, very rare that we see Parker Pine actually solve a crime. Yeah, I mean, this is a much more straightforward detective story for Parker Pine. There is a crime. Parker Pine solves it. And he tells everyone what actually happened. Doesn't tell anyone to lie and cover it up for the sake of happiness. And (laughs) justice is served by the end of the story. So, um, yeah, it's a much more straightforward mystery story than we're used to with Parker Pine. Yeah. And then there is a little bit of sort of stuck in his time xenophobic shade thrown at the poor Armenians. At one point, poor Rob Kardashian is referred to as that Armenian rat. And R.E.F. O'Rourke says no Armenian would have the nerve to kill anyone. So that's just bigoted right there. Yeah, it's not it's not great. And like his mother is just like covered in like shawls sitting there and very grumpy too the whole time, probably because she doesn't get a name. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) probably because they are just treated like absolute garbage by the other people on this bus. And then there was a little there was a vague Marple esque allusion to Parker Pine's experience of life that I appreciated when Pine is talking to the general, General Poli who has been uh, a bit of a globetrotter and probably had a pretty adventurous life. And Parker Pine says, I have seen a good deal of life. And Poli says, you have traveled, eh? No, said Mr. Parker Pine. I have sat in an office. You know, the implication being that by sitting in an office, by having a smaller life, he is able to actually take a look at the finer aspects of humanity and... Well, or, or, or the or the worse aspects. Oh no, I mean finer humanity. as in as in fine grained. <laughs> not as not no, as no, in no 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 I I know I know that I know that that's what you meant, but I just want to be clear. Parker Pine does not have much faith at all in humanity, which actually there again no, might that, have a similarity to Miss Marple. And I and I think the the argument there is because they both know humanity really well. I mean we talked about that actually in our conversation with Jamie that cynicism is what drives the Pine stories and it's also what drives the Marple stories. It's just that Miss Marple, well, you know, I think I find a little bit more charming. Parker Pine is just very blatant about his cynicism. Well, there's a little bit of an aspect, especially if you look at the hints that he is somehow involved in the intelligence services. If George Smiley had decided not to um, work for Britain, but to work for his own purposes. He's a certain George Smiley, secretive bureaucrat, making and manipulating all of these decisions and holding the puppet strings from an office that's like dark and somewhat sinister. It's just oh, yeah. that in the in the case in the case of, you know, George Smiley, there's at least a sense that Le Carre wants you to believe that he is doing it for the good of, if not the world, at least Britain. Right. We get those flashes of patriotism from Parker Pine. I think he thinks that humanity on a singular level is pretty garbage, but he has a belief in the greater nation that he finds himself in. And I actually think Miss Marple would probably feel 
similarly. We we know that she she's very traditionally religious, and she probably is somewhat patriotic. I would. Well, you know, oddly enough, even Poirot, you get that sense from, right? Well, but Poirot is totally different. I I don't think Poirot think that he's a cynic. Yeah, I don't think Poirot is a cynic whatsoever. I don't think no, he's he, a doe-eyed idiot either. But I don't think cynicism is what drives him at all. No, I know. But what I mean is I think that he has seen so much of that on his own that he sees the harm that can be done in the world. And the only difference with Poirot is that Poirot has this romantic streak that makes him want to essentially fix it, right? Yeah. And he has a, I mean, for all of Miss Marple's surface religiosity, which I think is more, just more goes to like her sense of tradition, there is a deep and warm faith in Poirot in his kind of religiosity that we do get even in the text from time to time that I think is unparalleled in any of the other detectives. Certainly I've, I've never felt it in Miss Marple and certainly not right. Parker Pine. <laughs> no, for sure not. No, Parker Pine just thinks that you can lie to everybody and that will be for the best. That'll be for the best. There was one other sentence at the very end of the story that sent me running to the dictionary for secondary, if not tertiary definitions, because I knew there had to be one. I'll just read the sentence out here. Um, And this is when Samuel Long, FKA, Dr. Loftus, is confessing and talking about having run into Smethurst. Then, by cursed ill luck, I run into Smethurst and asked if there ever was one. He was my fag at Eton. There is a secondary meaning, chiefly British, of a fag, which is an English public schoolboy who acts as servant to an older schoolmate. So that is a very specific definition of that word, which has a couple of different meanings. Uh, uh, yeah, although, interestingly enough, I mean, I don't know this because I actually did it. I did not know that, that was a thing until right now. Um, I mean, obviously, cigarettes and kindling were things, but that definition. Do you think that that is actually how it became the pejorative? Possibly. I mean, somebody else must know better than than we do, but it seems entirely possible that that is the derivation of it being a pejorative. I thought it was something about, because you know how it's like a bundle of sticks or whatever? Yeah. You set a bunch of sticks aflame, and that's what they did to homosexuals, and it's also where flaming comes from. Oh. But then uh, that actually makes like really two definite paths of the etymology that both kind of make sense. I know. I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, if anyone has any any uh, light to shed on that, we would certainly be interested to hear about it. Well, I think that brings us to an unlikely ending of The Gate of Baghdad, but an ending nonetheless. <laughs> that is our latest Parker Pine installment. Join us next time for a mysterious Mr. Quinn story. We will be revisiting Mr. Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite with the dead Harlequin. And it's actually, I think it's going to be a good episode. There's a lot going on in that story. There's a lot going on in that story. And of course, our next novel is Death Comes as the End, Christine 
Ali's novel set entirely in ancient Egypt. And we would love to hear from you as we always do. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha. Our Instagram handle is all about Agatha. We are on Twitter at all about the dame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. And we so appreciate all of the ratings and reviews we've gotten thus far. If you haven't done so yet, please do go wherever you're listening to this and give us a rating and review because it helps other people find the podcast. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.